Fourth and Forever, we're back. I'm your host, Mark Sanchez. Today's guest, a two-time Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots and Philadelphia Eagles. He's used his platform to positively impact communities and change lives all over the globe. He's part of a family that is NFL royalty. I'm excited to welcome La Flama Blanca himself, Chris Long. Thank you, Chris. Uh, what up, dude? Yeah, I wouldn't say we're royalty. I would say we're like, uh, whoa, we're like fringe royalty. Go ahead. What is that? That's like you know, dudes. That oh, are, fringe, fringe. Yeah, like on the in back in, in the feudal system, dudes that were not like kings. <laughs> they were like, they were like lords. Like maybe we're like. Royalty. But you're not a serf. You're not a serf. I'm not a serf. No. Um, okay. But definitely not royalty. I would reserve that for like an Eli and Peyton and all that stuff. And and maybe now the Bosa brothers, whose dad technically wow. played in the league. Yeah. You know? What about a two-on-two um, cage match, you and Kyle versus the Bosa brothers? Oh, What's feel, up? I'm what happens? I feel good about us. And I feel good about me. <laughs> I, I feel good about me in general, but, like, the problem is that my brother is a Yeti. <laughs> so that's, like, a bad matchup for either Bosa brother. Yeah. And we're not talking about football. I mean, they're tremendous players. I mean, before it's all said and done, I mean, they're already ahead of where we were net. But, like, when it comes to, like, Cage match? Yeah. If Kyle's not dropping down to like 215, I feel real good about it. He looks good right now. He looks good. He looks great. He's hitting golf balls like an addict. (laughs) I love it. Um, Okay, so let's go take take me way back. We're talking about WWE and wrestling. I'm sure there was some rough housing in your household growing up. Uh, I saw an interview with your mom in our research with uh, Scotty and I did. Uh, and she was talking about you and Kyle fighting and then like she would try and intervene and she didn't know like, are the, is this like supposed to happen? Is this cool? Or are they actually upset? And then sometimes you guys, it sounded like, would be like, no mom, we're just, this is what brothers do to keep the fight going yeah, so you wouldn't you get in trouble what? and then like continue to fight. I, I think, I think uh, when it comes down to us, cause there's three of us is Kyle and Howie are the two younger and, uh, Right. They're Irish twins. So they're like a year apart and I'm four years older than them. I'm like three and a half mm-hmm. and four and a half years older or three and four years older. And um, so honestly, like me and Kyle didn't fight so much. Like we probably roughhoused a lot, but like as far as like a physical <laughs> altercation where it was serious, you know, I didn't want to bully him. And then by the time he was old enough to fight, he was my size. So it was like, yeah, maybe it's, he was like bigger, you know, he's like bigger than me. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there have been a couple little scuffles here and there, but but mostly it was him and Howie who were getting, you know, sent home from school nonstop, and Kyle outweighs him by about 100 pounds, but Howie, Howie would fight him like like he was. He had no fear in the world. And so that was kind of, you know, like they, they had, there were ER visits. There were, you know, hey, Howie <laughs> took a picture frame to Kyle's head and cut it wide open or Kyle pushed Howie in the door and he had to go get stitches. I mean, there were so many stitches exchanged in my family. It was crazy, but that's just any family with three brothers um, who aren't, you know, going to become scientists or something intelligent. I mean, we were, <laughs> we were kind of destined to do, and my youngest brother, Howie works in football. Now he works, he works with the yeah. Raiders. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it was a rough household, man, but me and Kyle, it wasn't quite a truce. It was like me not being a bully and then by the time he was bigger than me, I was like, uh, eh, what's the point? <laughs> That's awesome. I yeah. love that. Um, okay, then talk about your dad, your old husband, dad, um, your wife, Megan. I know you guys met in college. Yeah. And uh, she was a, a baller lacrosse player, but yeah. you got Waylon and Luke, your two kids. Now talk about how you raise these two boys. Is it a lot like you growing up? Like, do you let them rough house a little bit. Cause I got a three-year-old boy myself and, yeah. um, this pandemic, the only good thing out of it has been being able to be home. Right. But talk about you as a dad and a husband and, and what those two boys are like. Well, it means the world to me. You know, the family part is a lot of the reason I got out of football. You know, if I was a single dude and I didn't have, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have two kids that we waited a long time to have because I learned from my dad's experience, 13 years in the league, that you can never be fully present when you're playing. So I tried to back that up as far as I could towards retirement. And, you know, after 11 years, I said, okay, I could go play another four years, maybe if I'm lucky and be one of these guys who's 38, still making plays and they flash your name up on Monday night. And they're like, look how old this guy is. 
he's still doing it. And everybody at home is like, why is he still doing it? Like, <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy. And I also didn't want to be that guy um, when it came to missing these years. As you know, uh, once you're retired, there's just so much more clarity and you're, you're so much more in touch with who you are and uh, who you want your family to be. And, you know, I was raised uh, by a dad who didn't have a blueprint as far as raising kids is concerned. He bounced around a lot, didn't have the things we had, and he gave us that through football. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences in how I would raise. And my dad was the best dad in the world, which is a miracle. But for me, like, I have two great parents who shaped who I am as a parent. And you know how it is, man. You you, you learn from your parents. You, there's some things you really admire about your parents, and there's some things you're like, whenever I'm a parent, I'm not doing that. You know, and, and, and there's just <laughs> see, I had, I had this the other day, uh, we're walking yeah. back from the beach and DJ, my son, he's grabbing all these sticks and you know, he, he doesn't have a tantrum, but he's just kind of like, dad, we need to get this other one. I'm like, buddy, you got seven sticks. We don't need eight seven sticks, sticks, you know? No. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? And I literally said something that my dad has said to me. And I almost just like felt my body and my soul just disintegrating. Cause I was like, oh my God, I'm my dad. Block. And I just said, buddy, you need another stick. Like you need another hole in the head. Come yeah. on, let's go to the house. <laughs> I just like, like, remember my dad saying that. That was the dadism. That's definitely a dad. Oh God, it killed me. No, I mean, killed me. I mean, the, the thing is like, you know, my parents, I, I get this a lot. Okay. Do you want your kids to play football? And right. You know, I think that's one of the main things. Like, how are you going to raise your kid? You know, with a fan asking. Right. You know, they, they just think about football. Okay. And first off, in my household growing up, it wasn't one of those things that people always have this idealistic idea of, you know, our family it was just this alpha male fest where we went out in the backyard and did two spot or Oklahoma and the winner got dinner <laughs> and the loser had to go sleep in like a, a cage outside. Like, that's how they picture <laughs> a football family. Like, that's not it. And, you know, but at the same time, my mom and dad – um, didn't want, they actually didn't want me to play football. It was one of those things that my dad saw what it did to him, his body, you know, the mental part of it, and was like, my oldest son, Chris, is not going to play football. Now, they tell me a story about when they sent me off to um, my first practice, and they were like, the night before, they were like, do we just tell him not to go, or do we let him go and get his lip busted because he's soft? This is what they said about me as a nine-year-old boy. He's not soft. <laughs> so they sent me to practice and they just figured that would take care of it. You know, like, cause if you deny it, then it's like for, forbidden fruit. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And so they sent me and I wasn't very good at it, but I really liked it. And I don't think I'll let my kids play football until probably at least middle school. And that's not because I'm not some like CT alarmist. I know it's real. I know that the outcomes are not always positive. Right. undeniable that it's not good for you. Um, I just think we have a long way to go in figuring out how that manifests in behavior and down the line, mm -hmm. because there's a ton of players who also have really positive post-football lives and live them out quietly. Correct. You only hear about the bad news. But still, there is no point in my mind for me sending my son out as like a six-year-old to do that shit where the helmet's bigger than the body and they're just aimlessly running into each other and they're developing their brains and they're damaging their brains and they're not getting yeah. good coaching. I'm not painting every, you know, uh, youth football coach with a broad brush here, but not too, you have to be skeptical of the, the people who are in that. It's not even an industry, but like the guys who want to coach youth football, sometimes there's some guys that are in it for their own self gratification. They're not teaching the right no stuff. Doubt. There's like no point. So the one thing I will change is I'm going to funnel my kids as hard as I can into being like intellectual and academics. And my parents tried to do that too, but football was just, it was just everywhere, man. And I think the country where it is now, there's just more consciousness about, yes, I'm holding a calculator. I have no idea why. No idea why. Okay. <laughs> this is free advertising for uh, star Darcy and star. Uh, God, I love them. They had no idea when they, when they made that calculator, it was going to blow up on uh, Fours and Forever. But <laughs> This is going viral. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we're at a different place in society where you can ask those questions fairly. And, like, it's not so abnormal to not let a kid play football at eight years old. You know? Right. So that would be one big – Or at least flag, right? What about flag football? Flag's great. You know, athleticism, yeah, teamwork. Yeah, I agree. You know, like, I want my kids – And you to learn play. the game. Yeah. I want them to play every sport. And I played every sport growing up. But Agreed. I'll probably, I think two generations of this shit, 
I've, I've kind of, I've realized that like the last thing I want to do, because I'm very aware of what it's like to grow up as somebody who has a dad who's larger in life in the sport. And I'm certainly not on that level, but I played 11 years in the league, two times Super Bowl champion or whatever, you, however people intro me, all that shit. I know that like, it's hard for kids growing up in a shadow. Like it just, that's why yeah. most kids who have high expectations crumble and, uh, or just don't do shit. And so I don't want to put my kids in a position where they ever have to feel like they have to live up to that. So I'm trying to figure out the strategy of how I do that. But one thing for sure is we're going to push contact football a little bit. Now, that's just me right yeah. now. I got a four and a one and a half year old. So I got time. Yeah. Okay. The last thing family wise, or, you know, directly relating to something we share in common is we both lived with a one Kyle Long for a period of time. You a little longer than me, but my favorite Kyle Long story is um, going in and seeing his full like racing uh, setup and the chair and the thing vibrates and he's got the triple screen, the whole setup. I thought he was in like a spaceship cockpit and I was like, what is going on in here? And so I'm ordering like Uber Eats and I just check in like, do you want anything? And he's like, yeah, check this out. I got a big race. He's like, I'm going to be tied up for like four hours. I was like, four hours? He's really like, yeah. Athletes. I was like, well, what if you got, I'm like, what do you got to, what if you got to piss? He's like, I got to hold it. I was just no, like, what? That's not true. You just I'm go. like, just pause the game, dude. If so, so he's got like his race team and he's talking about setting up this trip to Talladega with these people. I don't even know if they exist. They're online. Yeah. So I'm like, hold on. You're you're going to just go meet up with all these random people and they're like your race team. I mean, they're your race team online, but they're not like actually changing nuts and bolts on your car. Like you don't even know these people. They could be bots, right? Like they have to check the box and, yeah. you know, organize the pictures to make sure like yeah. they're not, you know, cyborgs or something. Oh, I'm yeah, like, yeah. what I mean, the hell's I mean, going on? It's, 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 it's weird. There's nothing against the iRacing community. It's just, if you're not. No, no. I just was so no, we're foreign to it. certainly not disparaging the iRacing community, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to marginalize the iRacing community, but I will you say better not. a lot of those same, you better fucking not. They'll run you over with their imaginary <laughs> cars. I mean, they'll just, they'll just show up in your driveway and rev that shit. So I really do think actually with Kyle, if you really want to be like the big boy racers and you're sitting in your little chair that looks like a sharper image chair, like it's, you said it vibrates, all this stuff for four hours and you really want the race experience, you got to piss yourself. Cause that's what those guys do. <laughs> you gotta go hard or go home, dude. Yeah. I mean, I and it. yeah, it's, it's scary to me that like, it could be anybody. It could be some guy in Russia in his basement that half the other time is trying to sway, you know, a, an American election. And the other half he's, he's joining Kyle Long's racing team. You don't know. You go to a bar to meet up with, with and there's, you know, you just never know who they are, but evidently Kyle and he's got a bunch of gaming friends and not just like i racing they uh he's met him off uh, i don't know you say off the court off the field he's met him off the field mark <laughs> off the screen off the screen, offline offline many of them are good guys so like he has fostered some real relationships in that uh setting but yeah like Kyle, i worry about his vitamin d intake like down in that basement like he is just, <laughs> just covered in cheetos in the dark <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Quickly, we'll we'll rip through your college career, which was you know you were on the verge of potentially transferring at one point, I think. But you're this four star recruit. You play in the Army All American game. You stay local and attend the University of Virginia. Then you get <laughs> to this house, and this was another tidbit. You know, I got I got um, you know people out there giving me info, yeah. and I need to know about the Meat Mansion. Meat what Mansion. Is that? Oh man. <laughs> so, so basically, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was a pretty highly recruited guy, but I only got my first offer. I took it to university of Virginia cause I just didn't think I was that good. So, and I was like, I better get it while it's hot. You know, like I wanted to go to one of these like sec schools or, a you know, a Florida state cause they just were always on TV and they had the shiny pants. Yeah. And, but then I noticed like, uh, I just didn't. I just didn't think I was fast enough. I didn't think I was athletic enough. So I so I went to Virginia and uh, I had a great great four years there, man. I uh, I met so many of like just like you probably did at USC. 
which was probably even more enhanced by that huge tradition. But for us, we're not some like the thing about going to school at Virginia is it's not we're working towards being a football powerhouse. I mean, when the Orange Bowl last year, Broncos really turned it around. But it's not like a it's not like a they don't worship you on campus. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm not I was never a god there. You know what I mean? So it's humbling in a lot of ways and it makes you I think that's why Virginia has a lot of good pros. And I don't mean that you're probably scoffing and being like, where the fuck are the good pros? But there are a lot of guys. No, Schaub. Matt Schaub is a great pro. Well, Heath Miller, James Ferrier, um, you know, a number to Brickishaw Ferguson. There's another Anthony Harris now. We've got a number of guys in the league who are under the radar that always exceed kind of expectations or at least are safe bets. You know what I mean? Because they're very professional. And that sort of thing. But we did have fun, too. We had a lot of fucking fun. And the meat mansion was eight dudes <laughs> in one. We took over an entire apartment complex. Um, we tried to live together just like y'all probably did uh, throughout college. But yeah. we ended up uh, fourth year at this play co- place called the meat mansion. And there was just... Is it because you cooked of, a lot of steaks? Or I don't, I don't get it. There's thousands of pounds of beef in that place. Everybody <laughs> knew... That there were just there was just such a it was like the beef capital of uh, of Charlottesville. There were just a lot oh, of big strong dudes there. A lot of big quote unquote meatheads in there. Um, <laughs> we're all ironically very smart guys, but uh, people still know about the Meat Mansion. Guys, 10, 11 years later, have heard the legends of what went on at the Meat Mansion. I don't want to get too far into it, but you know, yeah, no, I get it. Let's keep like, that one like medium fight rare. Club. <laughs> Did it exist? Am I really here? Yeah, well, I don't know. the first rule is you just don't talk about it, so I probably can't. <laughs> you don't talk about it. Me mansion. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, then what? Explain coming into your own. You talked about how uh, um, sensitive you are to your son growing up in your shadow, but when yeah. you kind of broke into your own, hey, this isn't Howie Long's kid. This is Chris Long. I mean, you'll always be Howie Long's kid, yeah. but as a player. What was that feeling like? Because coming out of that, it's not easy. Like you said, when you yeah. have such high expectations, um, you, you started to get all this national attention. You end up going number two overall. So yeah. what what did that feel like? And and um, yeah, take me there. Yeah, it was it was it was. It always adds like, listen, for every advantage you get, which past the co- co- collegiate level, it's way less of an advantage than being a coach. I mean, there's there's really no advantage to being a pro football player with a dad. Um, you know, it's a business. Um, and if my production wasn't good, you know, I'd been cut in my career. And, you know, in, in high school, you know, there, there was always, because I went to a private school, which is one, is one you know, check mark against you in Virginia because public school football is the best here. It's not like being in Jersey or something. Oh, okay. So, you know, there was always the, oh, he's a private school kid. Then there was the, you know, he's just, he made all state because of his dad, you know, he got a scholarship offer because of his sure. dad, which was wild. Because I was looking back, although those things seep into your head because you're an impressionable young kid, it didn't make any sense. Uh, you know, I- Yeah, well, you had a breakout year at Virginia. I mean, uh, I got your stats right here. They're awesome. Yeah, they were good. I mean, they were good. We also played in like a 3-4, so it was different. But still, I mean, okay, you were 10th in Heisman voting as a defensive lineman. You got a first-place vote. But here's the deal. I was always a lot of expectations and, you know, went to to Virginia to play for Al Groh and, you know, answered some of those those concerns at that level. So I was like, you know, you proved that people in high school who were talking down to you um, wrong. Then at Virginia – it's, you know, he's only seen the field because of his pops. And then the third year, you know, I really break out. And then my fourth year, I have 13 sacks. And, you know, you mentioned the Heisman stuff, whatever. Um, and then it's people saying, well, he just got drafted. Defensive high. player that of the was, year in the ACC, bro. No, which, it, but this is the shit you have to do. So there's always going to be those voices. And my point is this, like, even when I started slow in the year, my first two, or in the league, my first two years, I only had like 10 sacks combined. So that's like yeah. a, that's panic mode. Like people are saying bust and all that stuff. So, yeah. you know, even I found myself at another intersection where you're like people doubting you anyways, or doubt it, doubting, you know, you know, the, uh, the validity of your accomplishments and that sort of thing. Like this is a, another kind of um, fork in the road. So my third year I started, uh, you know, breaking out and, the next four years I had like 40 sacks and things were great. And I felt like finally that monkey was off my back after my third year in the league. It felt like, Hey, listen, you are a guy who, 
you know, for that four, four year span, I haven't added it up, but over those four years, I would say I was probably top five in, in numbers in the league. So yeah, that solidified it for me. There was no more like, Hey, it's about your dad. And people continue to say things like that. And people will always say Howie Long's son or, Hey, he'll never be as good as his dad. Hey, listen, um, if you had a kid tomorrow uh, and you know, any of these people that are critical that had 70 sacks in the NFL uh, and played 11 years and retired on his own terms, like, that's a career that most people would, would want to have. But the reality oh. is that when your dad had 83 and a gold jacket, you're never going to have that career. And it very right. rarely happens where a, 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 a son exceeds the expectations of somebody with, who, who had such a great career. So I was always very realistic. It also fueled me. It made me tougher. You know, I was dealing with criticisms and, and a microscope that other kids weren't. The flip side of that was I got a great dad who knows the business, who knows the game. Who knows, like, when I come home from work and I'm pissed off, he saw me play. And there's no, like, when you see your dad in the parking lot and you're not sure if he's, he knows you had a good game or not. Like, my dad was always honest with me. And I yeah. could go to him, you know, a lot of times before I go to a position coach. And I know that's like, you know, I, I never made it a thing where I would come to my position coach and be like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's what, it's just another voice. Right, you know what right. I mean? And that's so valuable. And, uh, you know, both my parents had a lot to do with my, my maturation. But, yeah, I'd, probably my third year in the league was when it started to go away, you know, uh, when I broke out there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then switching gears a little bit back to the college sphere. Oh, man. I mean, we're in a, in a sad state of affairs, it looks yeah, like. It, it sounds like Dan Patrick was talking on Monday that uh, the Big Ten and Pac-12 are about to announce, uh, and potentially with the rest of the conferences, that everything's going to get shut down, fall sports. Yeah. Um, it sounded like the SEC wanted to hold out and maybe poach a couple teams from potentially the Big 12 and the ACC. I mean, I could see them trying to go after a Texas, Oklahoma, Clemson, Clemson potentially like Florida a Notre State, Dame. Maybe. Yeah, somebody, you know, snag a couple teams to make basically a South, Southeastern Super Conference and then try and continue with the season. But you you got these top NFL prospects opting out. You know, yeah. the kid at uh, Penn State, he's top D lineman in the country, just like you were coming out. Yeah. He says, you know, he Adam Schefter just said he's signing with David Mogetta and Andre Odom at Athletes First. So, I mean, if you're in his position, would you do the same thing? Would you opt out or are you playing? It's really easy for me to say this now. It's easy for me to say I would opt out. Um, when I was 23, I was invincible in my head. When I was 22 years old, um, yeah. going into my senior season. And like, I, you know, you're just, risk doesn't scare you as much. But you'd like to think sure. that you would be more responsible. And then also at this point with, you know, a little bit more of the ownership players are taken, like the Pac-12 guys kind of. Yeah, sort of unionizing a little bit um, and the push for a union in college football and players being more cognizant of the power that they that they wield. I think that, you know, it's impossible for me to say what I do, but I think I would opt out. Um, not to mention, you know, like, listen, we understand the statistics favor young, healthy athletes. But I've right. continued to say this and we've talked about it a lot on my pod is like. You're also not taking into account that you can't put a. 380 pound tackle or a 350 pound tackle in the category of your standard 22 year old. I mean, That's you're point. extrapolating a whole lot as far as the lack of risk for a young athlete and not in including these people who have, you know, a higher risk based on BMI or that sort of thing, not to mention the coaches. Um, right. And I heard somebody put it this way. If if a college doesn't have a good plan for what they're going to do when somebody dies or somebody gets really sick, then maybe they shouldn't play. And yeah. as you talk that, talk that out and play it out in your head, is it worth one death? Nobody would say that out loud. You know, like you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would say a season would be worth the death of one college football player or one college Oof. football coach. And especially the coaches. Yeah. You know, nobody and, wants to wear that. Nobody wants to wear that and they shouldn't. And in the NFL, it's the same thing. Well, you know, we're talking about young, healthy guys, okay? All right, well, there's guys who are north of 30 and well over 300 pounds in the NFL. I mean, I don't know how that affects those guys. There are guys who are cancer right. survivors. There are guys who have underlying conditions that we don't know of the conditions yet. That's why they're called underlying, yeah. I guess. Um, I'm no doctor. 
There's also coaches, and you know this, Mark, from playing the league for a long time as coaches. Coaches aren't healthy. No. And, and they don't. No. They, they grind all day. They eat crappy. For the yeah. most part, this is a broad stroke, but they grind all day. They're indoors. They're outside for two hours a day for practice, but they're really, like, walking around and stressing out. They're, you know, they their stress sleep. levels are through the roof. They're just they don't exhausted. Sleep. Bad diets. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody. I mean, I've had my fair share of former player coaches and even, like, sure. somebody sure. like – Dante Scar up in New England, who's a legendary coach, like he's 80-something. I think he kicked COVID's ass, hopefully knock on wood, better than any of the young people because he's so <laughs> yeah. fucking healthy. And so you right. can't boil it down to any one thing, but I just think in general, like, it's sketchy. And then on top of that, yeah. you know, you got Jim Harbaugh talking about, okay, well, these are – I, I was just going that. that yeah. Like, we only had this many positive tests and that sort of thing. Okay, well, those numbers are based on a sample that exists in the summer in a vacuum what about when the yeah. you know ann arbor's flooded with kids again I, I live in charlottesville okay charlottesville's a good place to live right now especially in the beginning when you were really scared and we were trying to figure this thing out even more we have a number of good hospitals around here um you know so much so the people from the valley come to charlottesville and it's they're still not a capacity what happens when the students come back in and burst the bubble it's not the students right. you're as worried about. It's everybody in those college towns. And I just think that, like, especially when you're talking about unpaid players who don't have an opportunity to traditionally opt out, like, but the financial security of some of these NFL players, the paychecks some of them are getting, the 350 right. if you actually have a health condition, um, the lack of a union. It's just sketchy to yeah. be a college athlete thinking about this. It's very disjointed. I think you nailed it. It's disjointed. And, you know, in my opinion, I think – to break up some of these problems and issues that have gone on for a long time and have gone unheard and unspoken for, something like this has to happen, right? Something catastrophic. And it's unfortunate that it has yeah. to be something this bad and this yeah. potentially, you know, life-threatening, but it has to break it up, right? Because it now it forces, whether it's the NCAA, if that will even exist, or these players to to unionize in a sense, yeah. right? Just like what the Pac-12 said, what these players are saying in the Pac-12. And, you know, people are criticizing them for saying, hey, well, we want 50% of the revenue share. Well, I, it sounds astronomical because it's never been done, but that's what the NFL players want because that's your right. name, image, and likeness. Right. So you can't fault these guys for saying, hey, if we now receive that, if this is now signed into law, then what's the problem? And so there I, I just feel like the, we're, the, we're going somewhere it's gonna be good. It's just gonna be a rocky road to get there, and it's gonna be a new normal. Look how important college football. And this isn't one of these things where people are happy that college football financially is being no. be so important. No. But if if programs do not have college football, we're gonna see long, long-reaching implications within athletic departments. We already have, um, and you know, quite frankly, when it comes to the school and the towns, I mean, if you don't have college football for a fall you're going to see those implications and we might should see those implications to be safe, yeah. but, but you can no longer argue or downplay the importance of a college football program. And agreed. That's they support all the other programs. Not that, you know, yeah, football is better no, than that. That's not to say um, that football is better than water polo. Like that's, that's um, right. a subjective discussion, but when it comes to supply and demand and people's demand for college football, it doesn't, it's not there because of the coaches. It's not there. Because of you know anything but the players, and so I think that coming out of this, you're right. There might be an opportunity, and I you know it sucks to use the word opportunity, but that players could say, "Hey, man, listen, we are uh, enough is enough," and this proves that we need representation and we need to be we need to be paid because you're asking us to trot out there during a pandemic uh, and take the field and assume all the risk. And here's here's another thing: is I don't fault for Trevor Lawrence for wanting to play. There might be people no. out there who are bashing him for disagreeing with his assessment of the virus and that sort of thing. But we want college football players to speak out. So don't get mad at the Pac-12 kids. Don't get mad at Trevor Lawrence. Right. We ask athletes to speak out all the time. Um, this is a good discussion that we're having. It has to happen. You know, we don't have a choice. I'm talking about the discussion. I, I like that. Now you're in the NFL. Uh, you're We're going back to St. Louis quickly. You signed this huge 
contract, your second overall pre-CBA, mm-hmm. air bump for that one. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. That was fun. Um, then what was your first big purchase? Anything crazy? I know you're a huge jewelry and car guy. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely, Mark. You know I love the – I like the VVS diamonds. <laughs> Shut up. All right. What did you get? What did you get your mom? Did you get something cool for your mom? Did so you buy Kyle like a family. new joystick? I got my <laughs> – <laughs> a diamond encrusted joystick. I got my family a new football field for the backyard for when we get together and we just all go out there and play full contact, no helmet football. And then I got him a new cage to put the loser in. So I love Kyle usually goes in that cage. Uh no, I like I didn't get okay, I, I leased the Cadillac DTS. Okay. Ooh. Which is like the old mobster car, but it was so mm-hmm. smooth. So smooth. Mm-hmm. If there's a car that I could drive every day but be invisible like Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man, <laughs> and so you don't know what car I'm in, that's what they should invent, a car that feels like another car but it looks completely different. I would drive a Tesla already did it. the rest of my life if it would just look a little different. So I just blew the Cadillac endorsement part because I said that I just shit it on Cadillac DTS <laughs> appearance. But I love that car. Okay, I leased it. I thought I was being frugal. Then... I bought a Grand Marquis 1983 Mercury wow. and I put suicide doors on it. It was kind of a joke. It was like, it was like a beater. I got it. I put suicide doors on it. I candy painted it. And, uh, and then eventually after I damn near killed Darrell Scott from Clemson, because as we're going on one of those big cir- circular on ramps, the suicide doors like just fell open and he's hanging on by a seatbelt. Like, ah, and I had to like, yeah. <laughs> So that car was not safe, and I sold it, and a dare officer bought it. You sold it? A dare officer bought it. Uh, oh, wow. So some dare officer is uh, is out there with my old grand marquee. Those are my two car purchases. I'm more into buying land and stuff. I got a bunch of land here in Virginia. Yeah. And uh, I'm not some, like, I don't want to make myself out to be like I'm some, some like, really frugal kind of, like, guy who's always watching his pockets i like to spend money you can't take it all with you uh but i'm i'm not like i've stayed away from the rolls royces and shit like that very good that's that was an awesome story i like that one do you have yeah, any pictures well, of the suicide door car yeah i could try to produce one but i'd have to go deep in the archives it was a midnight purple i don't know if there's a, such a thing as midnight Ooh. purple it was like midnight blue slash purple depending on how the light hit it okay then i like to do this with guests any first impressions of me because the first time well the first time we actually played against each other would have been your second year preseason first game but i don't remember if you were playing i remember laurenitis was on the team yeah um but i remember my first play from that preseason game my first play as a pro in preseason i was going through the cadence and i dropped my mouthpiece out of my mouth (laughs) and i picked it up off the ground put it back in hiked the ball and just chucked it down the sidelines and david clown he catches this deep ball and i was just like what the hell just happened oh you're playing the rams yeah (laughs) i didn't want to say it no i mean you don't have to like listen there's some (laughs) things that i wouldn't joke about now at 35 because of if i hadn't won those two super bowls those rams jokes would really be touchy but i'm good uh no, my first impression of you, probably like, so I was thinking about you and me because we've always known each other and I've always, you know, obviously uh, loved me some Mark Sanchez, one of the one of the best dudes out there. Everybody listening here knows that. Appreciate it. Um, also, I used to be kind of jealous sometimes because I'd be like, Mark Sanchez is like a god at USC. Like, this is the best place to be a god of all time like in college football like you just live the dream and i was just like you know what kind of fuck this guy but i admire him <laughs> fuck this guy. and then he got in the league and you know i think we met a few times and i just was like yeah you know the thing about you could easily be a dick you know having the cool life experiences you've had and playing football in la and being a quarterback in the nfl making deep playoff runs all that stuff you you've balled out in the biggest cities like, but you're still cool. And I just think that's cool. So to, to build your ego up as if you need it, I think you're, you're a down to earth dude, considering everything you've gone through. Um, and, and I think uh, another one was, I could not believe that you and Kyle were living in a house together. I mean, I was just, I, I, was, <laughs> petrified. I was scared. I was scared for both of your Scared health. of what? 
I don't know. Just didn't seem like it's, it was a, it was a funny marriage, dude. It was just, <laughs> I worried about, you know, I was like, I was hoping Kyle didn't like go out with you at night. I hope Kyle stayed in his video game chair and I didn't want you to like eat Kyle's Cheetos by accident and get just pummeled. Get killed. You know what I mean? But yeah, that, oh was, that was it. I sacked you twice in my career when you were in New York. Yeah. I thought about that. So there's November 18th, 2012. You just know that off the top of your head. Um, you, didn't, you didn't even have to prep for the show. Yeah, no, I was 15 to 20, 178 yards, you know, through a touchdown. It's no big deal. <laughs> then um, you had two sacks, three tackles for loss. That's whatever. But we won 27-13. Of course you did. I don't remember that part. Yeah, there's a photo of you, like, trying to tackle me. And obviously, I was like, stiff arm to the ground. Then I moonwalked into the end zone, backflip, yeah, spiking through my uh -huh. legs. Everybody's like, hell yeah, Mark, you're the man. Chris Long sucks. You know, we it was kind of like that. <laughs> We well, that's how I told man. my kid it happened yesterday. I told him you're going to be on the, on oh, the podcast, and I was like, yeah, dad, dad <laughs> kicked his ass. Yeah, he was like, I remember that. I saw that old shitty <laughs> tape from the Edward Brown film. <laughs> that field was so oh, shitty, man. it caught on fire in pregame uh, before the Steelers game. Our pyrotechnics delayed our meaningless game like a full hour. I remember standing there next to Marcus Gilbert and just inhaling – rubber pellets and field turf which probably is bad for my health it was a Not total good. shit show in st louis and it was character building i loved that city those fans man like to go through what they went through and not ever give up that's why i always loved that yeah. place i don't love my tenure there so much because for a second there i was like damn i just wasted my entire career did you think you were going to finish your career as a ram i mean you did a lot for every city you were in but i did watch something leading up to this interview you dressed yeah. up as a homeless guy and slept in the back of a truck overnight yeah, in St. Louis. We did that. Uh, I mean, I you loved, loved you loved it there. Yeah. Did you think it was going to end as a Ram? And like, were you freaked out when it didn't? Well, you know, shout out to William Hayes. He brought that homelessness exercise idea to the forefront for the St. Patrick's mm -hmm. Center there in St. Louis. Shout out to them. They do great work. But we we always try to do a lot of community service there. St. Louis is a is a place that could use a lot of help and uh, also they gave us a lot you know and just as bad as we were to show up and 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 cheer every Sunday and and you know what I liked about St. Louis is and you never got this experience because I felt like you played in the big markets but like, always dude I couldn't I couldn't escape <laughs> yeah no like it was the opposite for me was nobody gave a fuck and all they cared about was, do you bust your ass on Sundays? And do you, are you accountable? And I was always that. You could say a lot of things about me, but I was always that. And then, so that, so I had this good relationship with the city and I wanted to retire a Ram. I really did, but they moved. So if you remember when they were moving, uh, a detail about that year, and this was 2015, is I had just been in IR two years in a row. And I wasn't myself, mm -hmm. and I was trying to play hurt. Anybody, any players listening, don't do that because they they're not going to take care of you. Um, they, you know, don't play hero ball. Uh, don't let them shoot your ankle up and go drag it around. They're they're going to cut your ass. Um, so yeah. I I um I remember the last couple months I was there, we were living in a hotel because I just knew I had heard we were moving, and I was probably going to get cut, and I had no interest, even if I didn't get cut in in playing in LA at the time. Um, because I was just like, St. Louis feels like they're getting fucked here. And this is my NFL home. You know, like yeah. for me, when I went to New England, it was just for a ring. I mean, I, let's not even, you don't even have to no, make, I get it's it. not like chasing a ring in basketball. Like you still have to earn it. Like it's still, there's no foregone conclusion. And I played my part or whatever, but Philly was great too. Philly was, Philly was just an out-of-body experience. And, and to sum it up, I would love to retire a St. Louis Ram. That's where I spent all my time. But there's no such thing as the St. Louis Rams anymore. Right. And it's the weirdest right. thing in the world before I got to, because I never felt like, I felt at home in New England, but I felt like a mercenary. You know, I love the team. I love the coaches. But I knew what the, the arrangement was. I was playing a little out of steam. Well, while you're talking about them, what was, what was different about their organization, like, that's led to all their success? Something inside of, like... Um, uh, one of my favorite things I've seen is uh, uh, when Randy Moss asked Bill Belichick about the roller skating rink Halloween party. Yeah. And, you know, like he does, Bill does have a sense of humor. You can tell, like, he's a real human. He's just a badass yeah, yeah. football coach. Real human. And when he says, like, hey, maybe, you know, I could go to the costume party and dress up as the devil or Satan or right. whatever he says, it's just like, 
it's so self-deprecating and so funny, but so real. Like he, he's in touch with reality. He's not some psychopath that you can't approach. So explain Bill Belichick the best way you can. And, and I don't know, what's the secret up there? Yeah, I think the secret, um, rhymes with Dom Grady. Um, he's one of the <laughs> secrets. Okay. The other one is Bill. Bill's always going to keep you in like, this is a perfect example. This year is a perfect example of how, when you look at the table and how it's set in that division and in the league, Joey Bosa said something that's really important. The most responsible team might be the one that wins this year. And mm. the most responsible team by virtue of geography, living in Foxborough, and also by virtue of who their head coach is and the standard that's set there, is probably still the New England Patriots. Now, in their division, I don't want to—I don't want to overlook Buffalo because McDermott's got to go in there, and then he's—he's yeah. he's building a culture, and they're in a place where, listen, people don't like—you're not going to be rushing to the nightclubs in Buffalo. Like guys are going to be taking care of their shit. So Bill does something where he puts any team, any team he puts out there is going to be competitive. They're not always going to be the greatest. Like this year, I don't know if they win the Super Bowl or playoff game, but they'll maximize their talent and they'll rise above everybody else when it comes to responsibility. Bill is not, Bill is the greatest coach of all time. He's not a robot. He just is unwavering on his standard for Hmm. football. And, you know, his standard is, is that you play hard, you play smart, because you can play hard and dumb there and you, you'll be out of there. Uh, you do your job and you're versatile. And I think that's one of the biggest things there is, I showed up there to play defensive end. Um, we changed the scheme a couple games in because of a couple things that happened at the linebacker level. And I think maybe the, the master plan was to go to a little bit more of a, a defense that looked unlike things I had played before. but. I had to, there wasn't like some talk where it's like, Hey, Chris, we're going to play a three technique the rest of the year. Like, I'm sorry. There's just like, we need you to play three technique on first or second down. And it's like, okay, you know, I haven't won a ring before I have, I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, the expectations there and it doesn't matter, you know, how close, you know, um, how, how hurt your feelings are when something happens, if you're benched or if you're cut, like, I think one thing that Bill does a great job of is keeping that distance from players just enough so when he has to, you know, cut a guy, there's no feelings involved. You know, he has real relationships with his players, but I think he does a good job internally and just in general of keeping that little bit of distance. And that's not Mm -hmm. because he can't have a relationship. It's because he has a standard, and that's the most important thing. It's not the relationships. The relationships happen through winning and through forging that bond through winning Super Bowls and making deep runs. Like he's got the sequence right where some coaches are like, I got to make a bond by being buddy, buddy, and then we'll go win a Super Bowl. I think, you know, there could be, you know, um, a sweet spot there, but he's on the opposite yeah. of the spectrum where it's like, we do our jobs and we go on this ride. We'll be boys forever. And I left new England cause I didn't want to play that scheme, but there were no hard feelings. I was straight up about it. And Bill was straight up with me. And I'll text Bill and Bill texts back. Like, it makes no sense. Like, I've had other coaches who don't text me back, you know, like, or, or might wow. not check in. Like, Bill, Bill, like, Bill will hit you up and say, like, hope you're good. Like, I appreciate that. You know what I mean? So well, I he still hasn't texted Bill. me. Can you give him my number so he could text me and check in? <laughs> but you guys are on the opposite end of it. But I think the biggest thing with him, though, is everybody consumes him through the media. And you just have to accept that some people are way different through the media. Just like guys that you and I know are frauds that are a certain way through the uh, media. Very good point. And you're very like, good point. And the general public deifies these guys, and I'm not naming names, and there's no subliminal because there's so many to choose from. But right. like you fans deify guys that are not that way and are much worse in person. It's the same way with Bill. Bill's terrible with the media. That doesn't make him a bad guy. He could be, but it'd have to be something else. It wouldn't be the fact that he doesn't feel like answering questions. Right. That's a good point. Uh, Did you see his most recent Subway ad? Did you see any of those photos? Man, I love him being a pitch man. Pitch man Bill is my favorite Bill. What else could you see him advocating like uh, brand-wise? What other brand ambassadorship could you see him embracing? Man, that's on the spot. But I was just thinking about because I had to fix my grill earlier. I could see him doing a. I could see him doing like a Traeger uh, backyard grill. 
Traeger, just gets fucking hot. You know, like, he's just so, like, like, he's just so, like, nonchalant and just so dry and so over everything. Like, he could just play himself in any commercial and it would sell. What do you think he says in the $5 footlong commercial? Just, like, I just mean, fucking do eat I have it. to say just it? Just fucking eat the sandwich. <laughs> just, just eat it. Just eat this fucking sandwich. What do you want me to do? It's a sandwich. Eat it. <laughs> he's just so matter-of-fact. Like, I think as a pitch man, he'd, have, he'd be like a... A method actor, and it—he just his whole life flows <laughs> seamlessly into being a pitchman. Oh, I love that. What do you got? That. What do you okay, think? So the, what do you think? What do you think he'd be? Ooh, the, I love the backyard thing. I still think um, may, maybe like um, like eye drops or something, <laughs> or I just know. like uh, <laughs> or like um, I don't I don't know. I, I was trying to think of something that's like strict, like time or like watches yeah, 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 or like, like a watch, like, a, you know, a and, but he'd almost like criticize people. Like, I know you're looking at your phone, but this yeah, is like he, like he knows exactly, he, he just knows the truth about you. He knows the truth about you. He can't like, he can't. And another thing is you talk about a watch, like you want to be afraid. People are petrified of being late in that building. Whew. I bet yeah, about the worst feeling in the NFL is being late to a meeting. In my opinion, it's the worst feeling. Oh, agreed. Being late in that building oh, was terrible. just not something I was ever interested in doing. I'd set four alarms. I would set four yep. alarms and in the middle of the night, sometimes in camp, I would wake up and open my windows a little bit. So the light would come in. <laughs> what about, um, did anybody's cell phone ever go off in his meeting? Whew. You know what I used to do? Swear to God, some guys, some guys didn't get it. Some guys didn't get it. I would turn my phone off and then take it and put it out in the hallway in the hotel. Like I would, <laughs> strength coach would be outside and I'd be like, just just remind me. I lost my phone three, four different times this way because I'd forget it was out in the hallway in like a windowsill because I didn't even want that motherfucker off in a Bill Belichick. <laughs> I didn't, you just. It's, but it's, here's what people don't understand. I'd rather buy 10 new iPhones then let that happen once in a meeting because you're just like, yes. Ugh, that's horrible. That's also, it makes more sense financially that he's going to find you the max. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also, like, you don't realize this about New England. You know how, like, a lot of places are disjointed as far as this position group is in the room. This time, team meetings are short, and mm -hmm. then we break down. In New England, the entire team is perpetually in on a Monday. So Bill would – and this is what makes him so great, and I always say this – he can coach every position as well as the position right. and better. He walks around the field and can coach any position. So on Mondays, accountability starts with him in the big room. And what's really good about doing this, well, I'm a big proponent of this. If I were a coach, if I were nuts enough to be an NFL coach and just give my life up for that terrible grind, I would have the entire team in on Mondays and we watch the, the whole film because there's nothing that makes you feel smaller when you fuck up and the offense is in there. You know, or yeah. another position group is in there, and Bill's going to call you out. Bill will call anybody out, and uh, and so I think that's a really good thing that he does. I think he's yeah, he's the greatest of all time. Did he talk down to Tom? Did he ever rip Tom? Yeah, he ripped Jules. He ripped Tom. Like, you know, uh, he probably ripped Hightower, and I maintain that that High is High is the, and this is why I'm afraid for them this year. If anything, is that High's out, and they're not going to be even with Cam. It's going to be hard for them to be some offensive juggernaut. We got used to them being that kind of thing. Those days are kind of past. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to win games on defense some. And without mm -hmm. Dante Hightower, that's going to be a challenge. High is yeah. high last year was the other than Gilmore, in my opinion, I could be without thinking it through, had to be the best player on their team at this point in their career. You know, like yeah. Tom gets grandfathered in, in that conversation, but outside of Tom, Dante Hightower is the best fucking football player on that team, and and Gilmore. I mean, Gilmore was one of the, if not the single most important signing they ever made in free agency. I know some people will say, well, there were more. But the reason they won, you know, a Super Bowl um, most recently was, I believe, completely predicated on them having that lockdown corner, being able to do everything they did defensively and zero up and bring pressure from everywhere. It was just like, it was right. a cheat code for him schematically. I like that. He's a baller. Um, then your Super Bowl with them, I, I've seen the interview after the game, you're talking to your dad and that was a pretty special moment. Um, and you know, you said a lot of things didn't have to be said 
at halftime and people just kind of knew like, okay, this is, yeah. we're going to do this one play at a time as monotonous and as stupid as that sounds. It just happened one drive at a time and you just start chipping away at this thing. And then it was almost like a, Hey, we'll, we'll do our job every play and just, we'll see what happens. Right. We just got to have one good play, one good stop. Okay. Offense go down and score a touchdown. Okay. Now where are we at? And you almost like reassess as you go quickly Yeah, and you continue to move on. But, to me, it's like Bill's got to be hammering into your guys' heads that more games are lost than won, right? Like, we're going to do it right so many times, and they're going to screw it up, and we'll get a couple breaks. You know what I mean? Like, things will yeah. turn around. So what was that like, experiencing a Super Bowl win in such a dramatic fashion? Uh, that had to be incredible. Well, it was incredible for half of it. It was the worst 60 minutes of my life because yeah, right. I was sitting on the bench with Rob Ninkovich and he had told me like leading up because I'd never been anywhere close. He told me in the weeks leading up, hey man, I just want to warn you, like I plan on winning this game, but you know, losing a Super Bowl is is the worst feeling in the world. You would rather ne never mm -hmm. get to a Super Bowl than lose a Super Bowl. You'd rather go 0-16 than lose a Super Bowl. So that was in my wow. head. And I was like, well, I got the damn near had the 0-16 thing twice in St. Louis, so how much worse could it be? But but still, just like the fact that I, you know, as a free agent, there were others, there always are in New England. You decide on there, you make sacrifices, you spend a year in Foxborough. I can't, it came down to, for me, Atlanta and New England in free agency. Mm. Atlanta and New England. And Dan Quinn wanted me to play Michael Bennett's role in Atlanta and do a little bit more inside rushing because that's kind of what Mike did. And that's the reason I didn't pick Atlanta. My dad was up in a box and he was thinking about like, when it came down to crunch time, he told me, go play for Bill, go play for Bill. Atlanta's awesome, but go play in New England. And he thought he was the catalyst for why I made the decision. I made it on my own. But I remember my dad talking about, he's sitting up there feeling like an idiot. Now the second half, the halftime happens and, you know, people could be all, and I'm not going to litigate who's full of shit and who's not. Some people could be like, oh, I knew it all along. I knew, I knew, I knew. Like you, you say all that if you want. But I played in St. Louis for eight years. Like, when we're down 25 points, we're not going to be down 25 points for long. It's going to be 40 soon. Like, that's the way things go in St. Louis. So I'm not – there's no right. – everything's pessimistic to me. But we just – to your point, we made the little plays, and then they made mistakes. Like, you know, if it, it's for uh, Freeman, mis, mis, mixing up a blitz protection and allowing yeah. – um, you know, high to come up with that sack. Atlanta was a little bit backed up. And I want to say at this point, it was maybe a two or three score game, which was tight compared to what it was. Maybe a two score game. Freeman messed up the blitz pickup. Me and high meet at Matt. And I was kind of mad at high because I was like, man, I could have been my strip sack at the Super Bowl. That was my sack. <laughs> so, so the ball comes out. At this point, I don't even celebrate because we're still down so much. That was the moment where we knew we're in it. And then at the very end, they're up uh, eight, eight points. So they're driving. Yeah. And Julio makes that circus catch on the sideline, toe tap. You remember that one? Yeah. And yeah. that's when everybody thinks, okay, we fought valiantly, but it's over now. They're in field goal range. So, like, you know, damn, we did all this. We let Freeman get out on a long run to start the drive. Then they hit this, mm -hmm. this, this beautiful toe tap to, to Julio. And they're in field goal range. It's over. But then what they do? They screwed it up. They kept throwing the ball. the ball. I force a holding on Jake Matthews. Yep. You know, first, first Trey Flowers gets a sack that knocks him to like the 33 or the 35. So they're at the edge of field goal range. So if they mm -hmm. get to 11, it's kind of over. Then Jake holds me, knocks him out of field goal range. They punt it to Tom. We're down eight points. The rest is fucking history. Like, so there were multiple moments of the game, to your point, where they made mistakes. And I feel badly for Matt Ryan because – this is the thing about quarterbacks, and you know this. Like, Matt, Matt's amazing, man. And Matt, Matt put them in positions to win that game. But on his resume, he doesn't have a ring. You know, like, I know. and people always say, if he doesn't win one, Matt was great. But Matt was up 28-3 exactly. on the fucking New England Patriots in a Super Bowl. And, and he's an uh, MVP that year, bro. He balled. It's not Matt's fault. You know, I know it's just that sucks. No, I know it does suck. I mean, could you imagine? Oh, it sticks with yeah. you. Yeah, that's the yeah, worst, dude. Tough, dude. Don't and get so, me started. We almost went to the Super Bowl. I don't even want to talk about it. Next subject. Yeah, <laughs> but they say the Super Bowl. Uh, let's see. 
it's worse. But, so you're but good. then not only do you win that one in the most dramatic fashion yeah. in history, then you go to what you've deemed the best sports city in America. Yeah. On March 28th, 2017, your birthday, you signed yep. with the Eagles as you. a 32 year old. You're a deep research guy. So, well, we, we went deep. Scotty and I went deep. And we also. I like researched. how you're giving Scotty the credit. You could have easily been like, yeah, I was down there grinding in the stack. <laughs> the like we, did, but we did both. We did it together. We did okay. it together. So, I have a great story about my best sports city moment in Philadelphia. And it was actually on the day before my birthday, we play a Monday night game. So it's November 10th is the Monday night. Obviously midnight, the 11th would be my birthday. And that night in pregame warmups, Gruden's on the sidelines and he's like, hey man, where's your cheesesteak spot? And I was just like, oh, I've actually never had a cheesesteak yet. Foles got hurt the week before. We're in like week eight or something. And uh, I go in against the Texans. We win against the Texans. Now we're playing at home on Monday night. And so he's asking me about cheesesteaks, and I'm like, I, dude, I don't even – I've never even had one yet. He's like, right. well, you got to get on that, man. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> if we win, you know, I'll go get a cheesesteak, whatever. Well, not only did we win, we, you know, blew out the uh, the Panthers. We have this awesome night. It was so fun. A bunch and of sacks, right? Yeah, dude, had we like had a bunch three. of sacks. Yeah, against Cam, and then um, – you know, we're making plays all over the field, balls all over the yard. We throw it a ton. It was awesome. It was just like football was fun again, you know, and I had gone yeah. through this crappy shoulder injury. I leave New York on kind of crappy terms. And I'm just like, you know, you're in that mode of like, I don't know, is this going to be ever what it was, you know? And for that one night, that city completely embraced me. And it was um, one of the best feelings I've ever had on a football field. And then after a game, Cause we go, I try Geno's, I try Pat's, you know, fans in the city are like giving me uh, French fries and cheesesteaks to try yeah, theirs. It, and we're yeah. taking pictures. Mark, Mark hey, I want you to have my cheese fries. Right. Yeah, what's up, Mark? Have a cheese fries. Yeah. 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 Mark, you I told you. No, 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 sure no, no I promise. Yeah. 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 Only if I could take it. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. I'm going to cry. For Snapchat? Yeah. <laughs> been Snapchatting your friends? Yeah, you didn't even tell me. Yo, I'm like, yeah. Yo, yo, Mark Sanchez. Can you grab my pocket? Let's go. Let's go. Mark Sanchez. Hold on one second. I'm going to go grab a sandwich. I'll come back. Yeah, All right, thanks. Sanchez. He ate my cheese fries. He ate my cheese fries. Mark, he ate my cheese fries. Mark, he ate my cheese fries. Thank you so much. You have the best in the city, man. All right, let's go. What's up, guys? Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It was just like, wow, what an amazing city. Like, if we could just win a Super Bowl here, this would be incredible. Like, you know, I love Southern California. That's where I'm from. But this was something special, you yeah. know, and I felt that. And and it was just, you know, oozing out of the fans that they love this team and this, this Eagles brand and all that. So for people who haven't experienced it, mm. what makes it so special there in Philly? Because there is like a Philly versus the world mentality. Mm -hmm. um, but what was it for you that moment other maybe other than the Super Bowl, but like, was it the dog mask stuff? Was it, mm. what was it that, that made it the best sports city in America? You know what I love about it? And you know, this from playing there is all the sports complexes are in the city in South. Philly, there's something to that, which is, yes. so, there's something to that. Most sports complexes for fans listening are just out in the middle of nowhere or because of real estate, you know, cheap farmland, that sort of thing. And, I just right. love the fact that Philly is very traditional. It's Eastern Seaboard. It's not quite New York as far as like the the crawling, you know, traffic and you know, just gridlocked. You, I could never play in New York. I don't know how you did it. Um, but <laughs> but like, it's a big city, and downtown is beautiful, and the people all love sports. All the sports are right downtown, and um, it's tough. It's like. It's like, uh, it's a gritty place. Shout out to mascot gritty in the NHL. Like it's, <laughs> and, and for me, my brand of ball was 
I'm going to bust my ass and I'm going to bring, I'm going to give you everything I got. And also the fact of where I was in my career, I was older and, you know, like it was obvious this was the last little hoorah for me, whether it was this year, a couple more years, I was talking about retirement. So I think people just appreciated that I gave it everything I had. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's why I feel good about my time there. Now, as a player, yeah. the flip side of that coin is, if you're on a bad team, I'm sure you don't say Philly is the best sports team in no. the history of sports. Because yeah. it can be, they're fucking honest with you. And I appreciate that, you know, but I, I hit the jackpot. Me, Torrey Smith, LeGarrette Blunt, you know, Pat Robinson, the guys that came in as free agents before that year, we are the luckiest people in football. We made good decisions, you know, leaving New England to go to Philly like me and LG did. People are calling you crazy. We were picked to be a bottom quarter team. And uh, yeah. Just that entire ride, man, um, is the type of place, and you know this, like you go through the gate into the stadium, you talk to the team cops, you see a janitor, you see somebody making a cheesesteak. Everybody just gives you that nod, like, let's fucking do this. Let's do this. I was Everybody's just going to say that. on the same team. I got chills right now thinking <laughs> yeah. about it. I'll always no remember pulling up after Carson got hurt because Carson was having an MVP year and we just knocked oh, off the Rams. Incredible. We were the favorite. And then all of a sudden, nobody, nobody gave us a shot. Um, so I'm pulling up to, to practice the next week and there's this guy who picks up trash on the side of the road and I'm stopped at a light. And he recognizes me through the car window. He doesn't come up to the window to tap it or anything because Philly people are pretty respectful. Like, but he just starts freaking out and throwing the trash in the air. And pumping his chest, and he's like, "Let's fucking go! Let's do this! We're still in it, baby!" Like, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, and I roll out on the window, and I'm and I give him like a shout out, and whatever, and I just see him like as we pull off, and everybody's just so like, everybody's ready to run through that tunnel with you. It's not they're not fair weather. Yeah. It's not like a place that for 20 years you haven't you haven't experienced losing before. These guys were perpetually like a bad luck place when it comes to football and they had yeah. like all these near misses with, with, with Donovan and, and getting in, you know, they were a good team, but they, they were like snake. Yeah. So to be the team that came together and like, uh, and did it finally in the fashion we did it, it was like a movie. And I'm not even like exaggerating. They yeah. should make a movie about that year. And, and Nick Sylvester Foles, Stallone should direct have it. to get a, an adult film actor to play Nick Foles, but we could, <laughs> it'd be a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Nick with his big old heart. Well, we don't you know, know that for sure. Heart. But the rumor has heart. it. Good for him. You know, like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, that was the great. Signs but then, at the Super Bowl parade for Nick were unbelievable. <laughs> I can't even share them on the, on the. But the dog mask thing, dude, like the fact that we were just sitting in the training room one day and Lane and I were just like, oh, you know, they think we're underdogs. Let's be stupid and get a mask. And then it ends up on the inside of the Super Bowl ring, like a little dog head you, on the inside of the Super Bowl Oh, ring. I didn't know that. That's cool. Eternity, bro. That's like, cool. So I'm just so thankful I ended up there and, like, it was such a yeah. close-knit team in a different way than New England. You know, New England was real yeah. tight. But, but you're playing against New England, yeah. and you just went through that crazy comeback with New England. Yeah. Now you're trading blows with these guys. I mean, in some way – when you're playing against New England like that, you got to think like, are you telling the guys on the sidelines like, dude, they're we're not done till this game's over. Like they're not done until they're actually dead. Like when the whistle blows for the fourth quarter and it's over, keep playing just in yeah. case because they can come back. You know what I mean? Like, were you thinking yeah. like that or were you telling guys? Yeah, it's like a like a zombie movie or something. Like you just yeah. don't don't like you know headshots or whatever i don't know if you like like you gotta finish this thing like it's um yeah so we knew that coming in because we were big underdogs and nobody thought we would win so it was just like we were so frenzied to get after them and it wasn't personal but it was just like you know what else can we do we just beat the vikings we took the vikings behind the woodshed and people were so afraid (laughs) of the vikings bro like yeah we kicked their ass and they were like a damn good football team who I respect greatly, but there was just nobody yeah. was nobody was coming to link that night and beating us. And it just felt like two weeks later for people to discount us that much, we were never going to relax. And we couldn't, you know, all those times we got a little bit of distance between new England and us, 
they closed it quickly. And as soon yeah. as they came out of halftime, the adjustments and Gronk and it got real scary to be on defense because we could not get a stop. You know, people are always like joking about beating Tom Brady and beating the Patriots. I always say, I didn't beat, I didn't beat Tom Brady. Nick Foles beat Tom Brady, you know, like, yeah. and really neither quarterback deserved to lose that day. I mean, here I am again. Oh my God. They both played out of their head. It was awesome. Yeah. But like the defenses on new England side, I really do believe that, that this is the reason they've, they've invested so much in defense going forward was to, uh, Bill decided if I ever get back in one of these things, I'm not losing because of defense. And he was right about it. Right. And, and on the other side of it, we were just, we just had to get one stop. And it just happened so late in the game was they were seven man protecting the entire game and shipping out and just, were, you know, if they were worried about anything on defense, probably our D line, to be honest. I mean, like Fletch and yeah. Brandon and, and DB and me, like our front four, but they chipped out, they chipped out, they chipped out. And at the end, you know, when they couldn't chip anymore and they had to get guys out in routes to get going, that's when BG made his play. And right. you know, we just needed to make that one play. It was so big. And um, even after that, they weren't dead. They had 95 yards to right. go. And uh, we were not relaxed in that situation. Came down to a Hail Mary. That's awesome. Yeah, no doubt. That's awesome. Explain, what about the parades in both cities? Because here's my perspective, not knowing what a Super Bowl parade's like. Yeah. But in New England, like, they've done it so many times. In Philly, you get Kelsey's speech, like, his outfit, the whole thing. I feel like parade versus parade, rank them, and, you know, give me your thoughts on them. Well, here are the pros and cons. I always rank the Eagles Super Bowl in that year ahead of the New England year, and that's no hard thing against New England. It was just so rare and special. But the parades, mm -hmm. both cities have some checks in the boxes, and um, I'll tell you why. New England, tight streets, okay? Very old, tight streets. Now, Philly, mm -hmm. the streets are old too, but um, you start in South Philly, and as you know, there's like a lot of – it's just wider than New England. And so one thing that Boston was really cool about was it was like a freezing rain day. It was like kind of slushing, like snowing a mm -hmm. little bit. And it was just perfect Boston parade stuff. You know, like it was just, <laughs> right. it just right. fit. And that being my first one, like also the duck boats were really awesome. That was great. Um, we had a blast. It was just so fun and both parades i got so popped at the parades i didn't go out at night so like <laughs> you know like once i got back and packed the dip it was over for both those parades but <laughs> but the but the but the philly parade you know you could feel that energy of this is the first time and there was also yeah. where it ended was so cool because we we ended at the rocky step so it's just like for anybody that hates philly just that has to be just hell watching that thing because <laughs> It was like, and they even ended the motherfucker on the rock mm. steps, just twist the knife. And yeah, did. the costumes, that sort of thing. Um, we had a good time with it, man. Um, I'm trying to think of a memory. I ended up in the back of a cop car, but it wasn't because I did anything bad. A cop gave us a ride back to our place. And um, the, the memories are pretty foggy, but both of those days were the best days of my football careers. They're, the parades are better than the games in a lot of ways. Instagram at fourth and forever. YouTube.com backslash fourth and forever. Like, share, comment, and don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Hook smash! Oh, hook smash. All right, part two coming your way.